I'm Carrick MacDonald, and this is Halfway to Borough, the Two Towns local history show on Cam Glen Radio. This year is the centenary of the end of World War I. In the years that followed the Great War, as it became known, clubs were set up all over Great Britain for the benefit of returning ex-servicemen. These clubs allowed soldiers, sailors and airmen to pursue a variety of sporting and recreational activities in the company of other men from the armed services. These men could perhaps recall their wartime experiences together and remember comrades who, sadly, didn't make it home. The clubs were also, in words written at the time, intended to be a lasting monument to the bravery of the living and the valour of the dead. One of these ex-servicemen's clubs was set up in Cambus Lang, at what is now Whitefield Bowling and Recreation Club, where I spoke to one of the members, Jerry Boyd. Jerry has been researching the club's history back to its earliest days. I began by asking him to tell me when it was the ex-servicemen's club was founded in Cambus Lang. Well, the club was initially established round about 1920. Uh, and I say around about because there, there are various uh, sources of information, principally coming from the Canvas Lang Advertiser newspaper. And it records various meetings that were held. Uh, and the outcome of that was there was a Canvas Lang and District X Servicemen's Club established at an address at 4 Main Street, Canvas Lang. And we think that was really just a postal address. And it was set up as a friendly society as was common at that time. And really the idea of it was trying to get a club together for the ex-servicemen returning from the war. And at that time, as you can imagine, 1920, there was a lot of ex-servicemen coming back and the personnel were finding it difficult for employment opportunities and for social interaction. And what sort of facilities did the club have? Well, initially they didn't have any facilities at all, and that really was a driver for them, was to try and give a lasting legacy from the war for the soldiers who were coming back, so that they weren't just forgot about. And they had a view to establishing a club that would provide, given it here, Mm -hmm. provide healthy outdoor recreation for the ex-servicemen of Cambers Lang, and to erect a clubhouse where they could have indoor recreation under the very best conditions. Mm-hmm. So they had uh, quite high expectations of what they wanted. Aye, aye, very worthy. Yeah. Yeah, How many members did the club have in its early days? Well, initially the, there were meetings held within the institute which were full, and they were quoting 200 members at that time uh, in the early stages. It was restricted initially to ex-service personnel, uh, and that was one of the conditions. Now, where did the money come from to pay for the, the club being set up and all the facilities? There were various income streams. The uh, local residents in Cambers Lang, in particular, some of the business people and some of the landowners were keen to make a contribution and to be seen to be make a contribution. And in addition to that, the ex-servicemen themselves found that there was an income stream available via the United Services Fund. The United Services Fund was set up by the surplus from the canteen of the United Services uh, from the the war effort, uh, and that then was put aside 
and made available to people throughout the land who formed their local clubs. Uh, and indeed, there's still clubs ongoing just now. You've got the Motherwell United Services Club, you've got Johnson United Services Club, and throughout the United Kingdom, there are a number that are still called the United Services Club. In 1920, I see in the club's history, there's mention made of the project now costing £10,000, which is a lot of money, you know, today in my mind then. The very ambitious scheme was to establish the, the recreational facilities for putting, for bowling, for tennis ideally, and to continue with the quieting that was very popular at that time. Right. A name that keeps coming up, Jerry, in the club's history is a guy called Gregor Hartness. He seemed to be the kind of driving force behind a lot of this. What do we know about him? Gregor Hartness was indeed the, the main driving force, and really that's what stirred my interest. Within the records here in the club as it stands today, we see that Mr Hartness was the president for the first three years listed on the board from 1923 to 1926. And the research that we've been able to do uh, on him, we know that he came from Dunoon uh, and he ended up in Canvas Lang. He was a bootmaker and he had a shop in the main street. Subsequently married a woman from Blantyre and they came to reside here. During his time in uh, the war, we know that he went from the rank of private and was promoted subsequently to the rank of sergeant. I was reading these articles and the information I had about Gregor Hartness and I was thinking, he's really, he's been a big man, he's, he's yeah. been the driving force. And then when you actually look at his war record and his service uh, records, it shows that he was five foot four. Goodness, really? So, <laughs> heights know everything. Clearly. He had the drive, he yeah. had the determination mm -hmm. uh, to go forward with this. And really, as we mentioned, although it started in 1920, the Bowling Green didn't actually get opened until 1923, and even then there was still some debate about the funding and about the uh, ongoing costs associated with the club. We were talking about Gregor Hartness, and as I say, he was the driving force really for 1920. He's the main signature right. for everything. He's the man chairing the meetings in the, the Institute. He's the man trying to keep order at all these disorderly meetings. Mm -hmm. uh, and he ends up the club the president recognising the boards for 1923 through until 1926. So he's been involved from 1920 to 26. Mm. Then we had a different president, and that was the first year of our championship. And I thought, I wonder why mm. he's pushed so much. Mm. Is he just taking a step back? Mm -hmm. When I was having a look at some of the records, mm. he had a family. His family consisted of a boy and a girl. 1926, he lost the boy. Oh dear. Mm -hmm. He's only three years old or something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's obviously why. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a shame. Jerry, you showed me a paper a minute ago with a guy's name on it, the, the guy that won the Victoria Cross. John Brown Hamilton. Right. What, what do we know about his story? We know that uh, Mr. Hamilton was a member here, and the, in the initial uh, books for the Providence Society that everybody, every member had to sign. He has signed his name, but again, he's signed it John Brown Hamilton VC. Mm. So we know that he was a founding member here. Uh, recently we know there was a, a memorial stone has been put down at the terminus there, mm -hmm. uh, along with uh, Private MacIver, mm. uh, and that will continue on.
Towards the end of Mr Hamlet's life, he was living in East Kilbride. We know he went up there. John Brown Hamilton was, as Jerry tells us, a founding member of the ex-servicemen's club at Canvas Lang. He won his Victoria Cross in September 1917, during the Third Battle of Ypres. The London Gazette, in November that year, describes Lance Corporal Hamilton's bravery. During the fighting, intense enemy fire was making it very difficult to keep the front and support lines supplied with small arms ammunition. The London Gazette goes on to report that Lance Corporal Hamilton, on several occasions, on his own initiative, carried bandoliers of ammunition through the enemy's belts of fire to the front and support line, and then, passing along these lines in full view of the enemy's snipers and machine guns, distributed the ammunition to the men. In so doing, he not only ensured the steady continuance of the defence by rifle fire, but by his splendid example of fearlessness and devotion to duty, inspired all who saw him with fresh confidence and renewed their determination to hold on at all costs. John Brown Hamilton also served in World War II, where he rose through the ranks, finishing that war as a colonel. Some of the meetings in the club's early years seemed to mean fairly kind of stormy events. There's local newspaper reports at the time about rowdy scenes and disorderly goings-on at the AGM. So why were feelings running so high then? I think feelings were running high, not just in Canvas Lang. You've got to remember this is the, the time of the Red Clydesiders. This is the time just after we had tanks in George Square. This is the time when you had an elected communist MP and this is the time when you had a great many people worried about a Bolshevik revolution in this country and the, the whole of the United Kingdom. So I think there was a bit of worry that the Bolsheviks were going to take over and the landowners, the businessmen, the people who had the money were concerned uh, what groups were forming and what their purposes would be and how they intended to mm. carry out their yeah. activities. The Canvas Lang advertiser gives quite in great detail and great depth about all these meetings and uh, letters from various members and ex-members. And there was a great concern, obviously, that some people were seen to be troublemakers. The other side of that coin was there was a great comradeship between the men who'd served together and they had obviously seen the horrors of the war and they had a, a great belief that they were relying on their comrades for their lives. I'm Carrick MacDonald and you're listening to Halfway to Borough, the Two Towns local history show on Camden Radio. In this programme, which marks the centenary of the end of World War I, I'm talking to Jerry Boyd, about Canvas Lang and District Ex-Servicemen's Club. I think that there were various committees mentioned in, in all the papers and other ones. You would get GAPs, uh, a guy who owned Clyde Paper Mill, oh, stayed right. up in Cairns House. Right. can't remember his name now. <laughs> his hmm. name escapes me. Yeah. There, there was all these people, Lieutenant Colonel Dodds gets a mention yeah, that yeah. team times. Hmm. So there were these people that really would have classed herself as, as being above the, yes. the cannon fodder, being above the, the normal soldiers. Aye. 
I don't know if they had a feeling of guilt. Mm. I don't know if they felt compelled mm -hmm. by peer pressure. I don't know why some of them get so involved mm. to try and help set something yeah. up. And I think that could well have been part of the problems at some of the meetings. Mm. And some of the soldiers, as you say, returning from mm. the war and great expectations mm -hmm. were seeing these Aye. industrialists, mm -hmm. high-ranking officers mm -hmm. and others telling them mm -hmm. what they should be doing and how they should mm -hmm. be doing it. Nothing's changed, really. And I think that was part of it. They're probably thinking, well, nothing's changed here. Yeah. And I think that idea about the different classes in the Bolshevik and all that, it was right. summed up, there was a letter sent in in April 1922 from Gavin Gemmel at 60 Glasgow Road, and he was talking about how the disputes had come to a head about the club and how mm. uh, things were trying to get done. Mm -hmm. And his thoughts on it were, the foundation and consolidation of the club lies in equality, love, and one class, ex-servicemen. In the fields of France and Flanders, there was only one class, irrespective of a man's standing in civil life, more especially at the hour of zero. The success of the club can only be achieved by cutting out the class distinction and the comrade side brought in. Let the club be founded upon the principles of equality, goodwill, peace and prosperity and in the laws of nature. And I think that sums up Absolutely. A lot that was probably going on, not just in Canberra's line, mm. not just in the club, but in the whole of the country. So I see in the history that the bowling and putting greens were laid by ex-servicemen in 1922. Are the greens that we're looking at just now from the clubhouse, are they the original ones laid all those years ago? It is. That's the original location of the bowling green. It was made as employment for the returning soldiers because there, there, wasn't, there was too many people coming back not enough work so they were put to work, some of them and given a job to lay out the greens it was probably assisted but the location is part of the football club that was here originally the putting greens and the proposed tennis greens were on the other side to the north of uh, where the current Bowling Green is. Right, so they're away now, they're gone. They're, they're gone. Uh, they're subsequently been sold off that land. Jerry, there's talk in 1923-24 about the club having financial problems and it always seemed to go bust at one point. Obviously the club survived, but do we know what happened at that point? There was great strains in the finances and they were under pressure. The money they got from the United Services Fund was originally given as a loan and the club had registered themselves under the Friendly Society Act. It was a legal requirement, and they had to feed back uh, results every year and updates every year as to what their spending was and what their financial position was. And it became clear, obviously, that they were struggling. And in 1923-24, we see that there was various meetings, and it was advertised in the Edinburgh Gazette that the club was going into liquidation. And I think that prompted a number of uh, things. It prompted more people to get involved. It prompted more dignitaries uh, locally to put out a final appeal and a push that, out of respect and out of memory of the war and the war effort by the soldiers, they couldn't let this club go under. And as a consequence of that, they did manage to rally. They managed to progress on and subsequently got themselves 
fully uh, registered in the Book of Sajines through in Edinburgh, and that's their lasting record that it will be there forever. Did membership of the club remain purely for ex-servicemen, or was it opened up to anybody else? Well, initially, because of the uh, involvement of the United Services Fund, that was one of the stipulations. You had to be an ex-service personnel or the husband or wife thereof. That changed after three years, and they opened it up. I take it. can only imagine that, uh, again, finances would have required that it be opened up to allow other people in to keep the membership going and to keep the spending going. The club changed its name in 1968 to Whitefield Bowling and Recreation Club. What was the reason behind the name change? Well, the reason quite simply is, as you can imagine, money. And it seems to have been a struggle for day one. But uh-huh. in 1968, the club at that time, shown by the minutes, made an application for a grant uh, to the Scotland office. And it subsequently came back at a meeting that the local MP, Gregor McKenzie, had identified that the club wouldn't be eligible for the grant because it was not a recreational club. There was obviously some debate about that and it came to the bit where the club decided the only way they could get the grant was to change their name. They had meetings, extraordinary agenda meetings, which are well documented, and there was two proposals, Whitefield Bowling and Recreation Club or the Croft Bowling and Recreation Club. I went to a vote, and by one vote, we became the Whitefield Bowling and Recreation Club Mm -hmm. to get the money. As it remains to this day. It remains that to this day, and we're still struggling (laughs) for money. (laughs) (laughs) Some things never change. Absolutely not, absolutely. Are there any plans for uh, marking the centenary of the ex-servicemen's club? There will be, yeah, be having plans in place to mark the centenary. Now, what we're going to do is mark the centenary in 2023, uh, and that is because we have definite knowledge and definite evidence via the records in uh, the Canvas Lang Advertiser that the club, as a bowling club, opened their greens in April 1923. Mm-hmm. So we've decided that that will be the centenary year because we continue really as a bowling club. The, the only thing I would say, Carrie, is the club as we are now and the premises that we are now, we moved here in 2006. We didn't move very far. This was a, a bowls house prior to that. But we had a developer come in. And as I say, there's a continuing theme here. Why short of money? <laughs> and the developer made us an opportunity to buy our old clubhouse and our old bar area uh, and some of our land. And he put in new... Uh, apartments and that also built us a new clubhouse that we're in today. Fantastic facility and we grasped that and we accepted that. Unfortunately, when we look back and we were trying to find out a wee bit more about the history of the club, we don't have anything. We have no records whatsoever other than our minute books really from 1968, 1970. So what do we think happened to most of the archive records then? I think they, they were probably shown out by the builder and disposed of by the builder mm. at the time no. uh, that he demolished our old clubhouse. If there was anything, it was probably, I wouldn't say secreted, it was probably stored in an area of the old clubhouse right. that people didn't normally get into and the builders come in and 
demolished it. Mm-hmm. So really, we, we've got a couple of uh, articles going quite a bit back. The first championship was held in 1926, and we have the original championship cup. We have a number of silver jacks that were presented to people over the year, mainly in opening day, some of them from 1932. We really don't have an awful lot of articles or artefacts relating to the club and its use or its guise of an ex-servicemen's club. Mm -hmm. And I would ask if any of your listeners have got anything like that, we'd be delighted if they could get in touch, send us a picture or we could take a picture just for our, our own records and perhaps for displays within the clubs uh, that would allow us to recognise that the club had a valuable contribution over the years. And for instance, we know, again, through uh, some research we did, that during the Second World War, the club grounds were used as a, an area for barrage balloons, really? and they were quite common throughout the Clydeside Aye. to deter the bombers coming over. Mm-hmm. And we know that the club at that time was used for that. So there has been a, a connection carried on through uh, over the years Aye. for the military. Is the club doing all right then? We're struggling for money. Uh, we're struggling for members because mm-hmm. membership in bowling clubs has gone down. There's been a number of bowling clubs closed. Have we done well recently? Yes. We've got a guy there, Mark Higgins, was a junior champion from 2003. Mm-hmm. And this year he became the Scottish singles bowling champion. Excellent. So, massive big trophy there. Yeah. He's a champion for the mm-hmm. whole of Scotland. That's the trophy that any bowler Aye. aspires to, Aye. and we're absolutely delighted. And mm-hmm. almost 100 years that we've been up and running, we've never had a Scottish champion. Well, that's a nice thing to mark the centenary, isn't it? It's yeah. wonderful. It's been a great year for him. I'm Carrick MacDonald, and you've been listening to Halfway to Borough, the two towns local history show on Cam Glen Radio. Many thanks to Jerry Boyd a Whitefield Bowling and Recreation Club, who's been talking to me about Canvas Lang and District Ex-Servicemen's Club. And don't forget, if you've got any documents, letters, trophies or any other items relating to the history of the present bowling club or to Canvas Lang Ex-Servicemen's Club, please contact Jerry on 0141 641 2809 or email the club at whitefieldbowlingclub20 at gmail.com. I hope you enjoyed this programme and that you can join me again next time. Until then, bye-bye. Radio is an amazing medium. It can inspire, entertain, inform and connect people. This station, Cam Glen Radio, is run by a dedicated, passionate and committed team of volunteers and you can be one of those volunteers too. It doesn't matter if you're an experienced broadcaster or if you've never set foot in a studio in your life. We provide all the training and support that you need to do what you want to do. And it's a great way of making new social connections, learning new skills, expanding on your CV and just having loads of fun. So to find out more about volunteering with Cam Glen Radio, just email volunteering at healthynhappy.org.uk. You're listening to Press Pause on Cam Glen Radio.
This is a program that focuses on nature sounds to promote relaxation and mindfulness. For the next half an hour, you'll hear the sounds of Dune Ponds Nature Reserve.